You are listening to a message from Thrive Community Church, a church located in Southwest Florida. For more info, visit us at thrive-fl.org. Yeah, welcome back. I know it's been a while, right? Nice vacation. What's my name? I'm a visitor here today. Um, No, it's great to be here. Um, Do I still have it? Um, I don't think I ever did, so... (laughs) And by the way, from everything I've heard, Carl, maybe I should just stay away longer. No, seriously. I I remember at least watching one uh, sermon up up in Michigan, Um, and uh, it was awesome. Awesome. Thank you so much. It's good to have uh, good help. (laughs) Right? Right, so it's good to be here. We're still in this series in the Gospel of Mark called Simply Jesus. Um, And today we're getting to one of the simplest and yet most profound and the hardest sayings Jesus ever said. You've heard it, and none of us like it. (laughs) Not really. Not if we understand it. Um, It's especially hard, I think, for us here in America where... Um, All of us happen to be basically in the top 20% of world's wealth, okay? Um, Do you know at the 50th percentile, you know what you need to make? uh, Just above the 50th percentile, all you need is income of $4,120 a year, and you're in the top 50% in the world. Yeah, it's pretty amazing, isn't it? And some of us who've maybe traveled overseas or elsewhere realize how fortunate we are, how blessed we are. But that blessing does not necessarily mean because I'm blessed because I'm so good. (laughs) I'm better than. And that's kind of what we're getting at in this text today, especially with the understanding of what is the good life and how, quote, the good life, according to our uh, um, cultural definition, can get in the way of the great life. So today, uh, we're going to be reading from Mark chapter 10. And you can follow along with this through the Bible notes you can get in the version of the Bible app right here. Um, and uh, all the, the notes are there for this message. But we're in Mark chapter 10, verses 17 to 31. And as he was setting out on his journey, a man ran up and knelt before him and asked him, Good teacher, What must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. Do not murder. Do not commit adultery. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Do not defraud. Honor your father and mother. He said to him, Teacher, all these I have kept from my youth. And Jesus, looking at him, loved him and said to him, You lack one thing. Go, sell all that you have and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven, and come follow me. Disheartened by the saying, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. And Jesus looked around and said to his disciples, How difficult it will be for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. And the disciples were amazed at his words, but Jesus said to them again, Children, how difficult it is entered to the kingdom of God. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. And they were exceedingly astonished and said to him, Then who can be saved? Jesus looked at them and said, With man it is impossible, but not with God, for all things are possible with God. Peter began to say to him, See, we have left everything and followed you. Jesus said, Truly, 
I say to you, there is no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or land for my sake and for the gospel who will not receive a hundredfold now in this time, houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lands with persecutions. And in the age to come, eternal life. But many who are first will be last and the last first. Simple, profound, difficult. That's his statement. It's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. You know, that saying was just as controversial when Jesus said it as it is today. Nothing's changed. Uh, maybe income levels have changed. Maybe uh, our toys have changed. Maybe technology has changed. But the human heart hasn't changed, and the issues haven't changed. And it comes in huge res- uh, to a, a huge question. The man asks the question, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Now, that's a basic question. How in the world do I get to heaven? How do I get in? How, what qualifies me? How am I going to get in it? And we know this rich young man. Now, we know he's rich from Mark. He has great possessions. We also know from Luke that he's young. He'd be a Palestinian yuppie, okay? <laughs> Young urban professional, he's got it all, he's um, in charge of it all. He looks like the epitome of what everybody was hoping for in the good life. And he asks this question, and after Jesus goes through, you know, what must I do to inherit eternal life? He goes, okay, let's go through the checklist. It was the typical checklist any rabbi would have said, so you know the Torah, you know the law. And he goes through all the commandments, um, save for the ones on coveting, by the way. Did you, you might not have noticed that. But coveting was not one of them that he brought up at this point yet. And hearing the young man say sincerely, he has kept them all since his youth. Then Jesus brings up the idea of money. If you want to be a Christian, money's going to be an issue. There's just no way around it. Money's always an issue. I mean, it is really an issue. And either money becomes a definition of who you are, or you define what money will do in your life. But it's going to be a power. And that's the issue here, is that money has a power so often in our lives that it can control us. And we can um, be defined by it rather than defining who we are by God's word. Okay. So today we're going to be looking at this, the spiritual danger that this causes, this good life, under these three headings. The facts of this danger, the reasons for this danger, and how we're going to overcome this danger. So first of all, the facts. Now the disciples, isn't it amazing? They hear this statement by Jesus that it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than a rich person to get into the kingdom. And the disciples, who are all poor, by the way, right? They're not sitting there going, yeah, Jesus, amen, say it, preach it, brother, stick it to them. They don't. They're not excited about this because the assumption was in their day, if you have a lot of wealth, it's because God gave it to you. No problem with that. And because you did something that God gave you favor over others. Problem with that. But the assumption was anybody who was wealthy must be especially favored by God over other people. And therefore, we're like this with God. 
Jesus doesn't have a problem with wealth creation in this text. But on the other hand, he warns, like I said, it's harder for a rich person to get into the kingdom of God than for a camel to go through the eye of a needle. Now, I've read a number of commentaries. I don't know if you have Carl over the years trying to kind of water down that metaphor. Well, the camel doesn't mean a camel. <laughs> okay. Or the needle of the eye of a needle doesn't mean a little sewing needle. But none of them make any sense, by the way. None of the explanations make sense. That we're all trying to make it possible for a rich person to get into the kingdom. For anybody, let's make it possible, doable. It reminds me a lot of um, in John, I know a different gospel, but John chapter 3, when Nicodemus, who in the sense was wealthy and knowledgeable and at the peak of his power, comes to Jesus in the middle of the night, and Jesus says, you must be born again. And Nicodemus is trying to figure out how he's going to do that. How am I going to get back in to my mother's womb and do it all? And it's like, no, it's impossible. It's impossible. Uh, uh, well, you know, this saying, camel, eye of a needle, it, the camel's the largest animal in the Middle East. The needle is the smallest opening. It's very similar to our saying, the snowball's chance in Florida <laughs> in the summer. <laughs> but it is. It's very similar to that. And, and by the reaction of the disciples, we know that that's what Jesus meant because they're astonished. Well, then who can be? How is that possible? They're shocked because they thought this person had it all. He kept the law. He was moral. He was sincere. He was seeking. He was young. He was healthy. He was wealthy. He was wise. How can anybody then make it? The disciples could see nothing but good in this man, that he would be a true son of Abraham, what everybody was hoping to have in life. And Jesus saw something deeper. You know, Jesus is like a good counselor. Well, of course, he's like a good counselor. One of his names from Isaiah is a wonderful counselor. But the idea is a good counselor, if any of you have ever been to counseling, and when you go, let me tell you, the presenting problem, right, Carl? You know this, right? The person presents a problem and says, oh, my goodness, I'm so stressed out in my life. I just don't know what's going on, is not the real issue. There's an issue behind the issue that the person cannot see at the time. And a good counselor goes, oh, OK, and understands there's going to be more to dig here. And that's what happens here in this text. Jesus realizes, wait a minute, something else is going on. He asks this question that he should be able to answer himself. What must I do to inherit eternal life? The answer has always been the same with every rabbi he probably went to, because everybody knew in Judaism at the time, what must I do to, eternal, to inherit eternal life? You know the law. Keep the law. Avoid sin. But notice, he's coming to Jesus to ask this question that was obvious. So something else, he is not satisfied with the answer. Something's missing. Something is not working. He has everything, and yet he has nothing. He has all the good the world can give him, but he doesn't feel good about it. He had a bed 
but he didn't have rest. He had food, all that he needed, but he wasn't satisfied. He had a house, but he didn't feel at home. He had health, but he didn't have wholeness. He's all that we call the good life, and yet there's something that's just not quite good. And Jesus understood what's going on because this, Jesus identifies it at the beginning when he starts out, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus' response was, um, who are you calling good? Do you realize there's only one good? Only one good. And that is God. Fascinating. Jesus is not concerned about the bad things in this person's life. He's, considered, he's concerned about the good things, getting, way, getting in the way of the best. There's a lot of good things we all have, right? You could probably list your blessings from now until sundown today, and you wouldn't even have scratched the surface of all the good things in your life. But there's only one good, one ultimate good, and that's the question Jesus has here. It reminds me of what C.S. Lewis wrote in his book, The Great Divorce. It's actually about the divide or divorce between heaven and hell in this metaphorical book. And he writes in this, there is but one good, that is God. Everything else is good when it looks to him and bad when it turns away from him. And Jesus, as the good counselor, diagnoses the issue and says, one thing you lack Go sell all that you have and give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven and come follow me. Jesus is basically saying, I want you to imagine your life with all that good stuff gone. Imagine all of that good stuff that you have held on to gone for a moment so that you have nothing else to trust but me. I'm enough. And the rich, young, yuppie responded. Disheartened by the saying, Mark writes, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. Now that Greek word for sorrowful here doesn't mean just sad. It really means totally distraught or despondent because it's the exact same word that occurs later in the Gospel of Matthew and in the Gospels. When Jesus is in the Garden of Gethsemane, he is sorrowful to the point of death. The same exact word. Why? Because at that moment, Jesus is not looking forward just to the physical pain of the cross or the difficulty of being beaten or whipped. That is not the issue for him. That he was looking at the fact that his father was going to turn away from the son. The fact that his lifeline, his identity, who he was, what he was all about his father and his relationship to his father was going to be stripped away from him and so he became sorrowful. So the relationship and the identity that Jesus had found in his relationship to the father is equal to the identity and the relationship this young man had to his wealth. Do you get it? Going to the cross for Jesus was the existential moment in crisis, not about physical torture, 
but the emotional, psychic, spiritual, hellish torture of being abandoned by his father for the sake of humanity. And Jesus knows this is the difficulty this young man has. He has identified himself with his possessions. Now, why is that dangerous? The reasons for that danger, you see, I'm going to kind of come at it at a different tactic. It's one thing to please God. It's another to trust God. This young man thought, okay, all I need to do is please God, get him to kind of like give me approval for how I'm conducting my life. What must I do to inherit eternal life? So these are the things I'm doing. Check. God likes me and therefore blesses me. I'm in. And what is he actually trusting? Himself. It's one thing to have God as your boss. It's another to have God as your savior. He asks, by the way, right? The question is, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Do you, find, do you see the built-in contradiction with that? Now, I don't know about you. I, I believe I'm in my mother's will, OK? Um, I just visited her for a few weeks. What am I going to, quote, do to inherit from my mom? Nothing, really, right? It's what she did to put me in her will. And when she passes away, that's when things happen. You don't do anything to inherit. Something's been done for you. And this man thinks somehow he needs to get God to approve of him and to make sure that he's doing the right things. He doesn't see the built-in contradiction. And here, I know this might sound very, very like, what? To be a Pharisee, all you have to do is repent of your sins. To be a Christian, you got to let go of your goodness. If your primary motive is to try to please God, which a lot of people on this world is, you will actually not please him. Because you're trying to prove yourself to him every moment along the way. You're holding on to your work or your efforts. Or here, this young man was holding on to all, this, all the blessings, material blessings that he had as, look, God, look at what you've given me. Look at how I'm using it. Look at how good I am. Am I good enough? And he's really trusting in himself and not in God at all. Now, a, bu a book I think I recommended I don't know if I did this summer. Last summer for a summer read was the book called The Cure. What if, it, if God isn't who you think he is and neither are you? And in it, John Lynch writes this. If our primary motive is pleasing God, we'll never please him enough and we'll never learn to trust. Pleasing God is a good desire. It just can't be our primary motivation or it'll imprison our hearts. If we all, all we bring to God is our moral striving, we're back at the same lie that put us in the need of salvation. We're stuck with our independent talents, longing and resolve to make it happen. This self-sufficient effort to assuage a distant deity 
It nauseates God. This is where this man is. He's trying to please God with a good life that nobody would fault him for, and he doesn't trust God. So what's the alternative Lynch goes on? He says, when our primary motive becomes trusting God, however, we suddenly discover there is nothing in the world that pleases him more. Until you trust God, nothing you do will please God. Now, you kind of see why maybe money is so dangerous or the good life? Because we innately believe somehow we are either blessed because I must have done something good in order to get this, or that we use what good we've got to try to show off to God or to others how good we are, and all the while I'm trusting myself rather than God. That's the danger. The bad stuff I do in life, yeah, it's not good. And I repent of those things. But everybody does. Oh, yeah, I've done some bad things in life, but, right? You hear people, they, they aren't going to hold on to the bad things they've done. But it's the good things Jesus is saying here. Even the blessings from God that can get in the way of the greatest thing. God himself. Only God is ultimately good. So how do we overcome this? And I think Jesus said it at the beginning. He said, or, and then he said, only God is good. And then he tells his disciples some, a, a deep truth. With man, it is impossible, but not with God. For all things are possible with God. Do you realize that the only people who are saved are the ones who realize it's a miracle that they're saved? That on our side, it's absolutely impossible. There's not enough good I could ever do. There's nothing that I could earn. Or, you know, the things I deserve are not the things I don't want what I deserve. It's only because of God. It's not about my money. It's not about my practices. It's not about my morality. It's not about me. It's about my God. It's about the inheritance he has given me. So you might have many things in your life as a Christian, but they are never your identity. The core of your identity will always be the goodness of God and the fact that God has called you and that God has saved you and that God has done the impossible for you because of God's love for you. It's really amazing. In this text, by the way, Jesus even brings up the issue of money. He even diagnoses the problem, and you will see if you read in this text, I don't have a slide that says this, but it says, and when Jesus heard this man, he loved him and said, one thing you lack. Go sell everything you have. He loved him. As John Lynch says, this life in Christ is not about what I can do to make myself worthy of his acceptance, but all about daily trusting what he has done to make me worthy of his acceptance. He loves this man. He's already loved him, even in his flawed situation. And you never really understand any small story in the Bible, by the way, without looking at the greater story in the Bible. 
It fits into this grand narrative. You know, I think when Jesus was looking at this man and realized how much, how much wealth he had, how he was trying to keep the law, all the things that he was doing, how he had everything everybody wanted in life, and he loved him, I think Jesus is saying, hey, you know what? I'm rich too. I'm rich beyond your wildest imagination. I have had all the glory and honor and privilege and power and beauty and wealth that I am the son of God. And yet, I've given it all up. I give it all away. I'm giving it all away to have you. I left all that wealth and glory behind. I've come for you to seek you out. I'm centering my whole life on your deepest needs. And that's going to take me to the cross where I'll lose everything and give it all up. That's why Paul, in the letter to the Corinthians, his second letter, puts it this way. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor so that by his poverty you might become rich. You get over, quote, this whole money good thing and the good life when you see the goodness of God, when it starts to melt your heart at what Jesus has given up for you. Willingly, joyfully. And you start then seeing that People of different socioeconomic backgrounds, um, well, you can see their value because of how you see them through Jesus Christ, regardless that you can hang out with anyone, that you will try to figure out how you can engage with the poor and you give yourself to others, how you will give not in legalistic exacting terms, of, okay, now what percentage do I have, where you start seeing that the tithe in, is just a a guideline, and that you can grow in exceeding that. And you realize the good life is actually the life of investing in others and giving yourself away time and again, your time and your money and your talents and your abilities. Because at the heart of the gospel is the cross. And the cross is all about how Jesus gives up power and pours out his resources and serves us all. It's not about gaining and attaining. And that's what our lives are about as well. While I was uh, thinking about this sermon, this message, and this text, um, one of the childhood hymns that I haven't sung in a long time came to mind. Just a couple of verses from it. I never really liked the melody, by the way, but the words are just really profound. Jesus priceless treasure, source of purest pleasure, truest friend to me. Long my heart hath panted till it almost fainted, thirsting after thee. Thine I am, O spotless lamb. I will suffer not to hide thee, ask for naught beside thee. Hence all earthly treasure, Jesus is my pleasure, Jesus is my choice. Hence all empty glory, what to me thy story told with tempting voice. Pain or loss or shame or cross shall not from my Savior move me since he chose to love me. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, this simple and profound 
statement cuts to the heart of our culture and our society. Lord, we place so much of the, our weight on having a good life when there's nothing good except you alone, O oh Lord. Father, we pray that you would teach us how to treasure your son, Jesus Christ, how he gave up everything for us, and therefore we can give up anything for the sake of your kingdom. Teach us, O oh Lord, to have a wise, discerning attitude toward any blessings in our life, any of the good that we have, that we're not holding on to it directly, but holding on to you profoundly. It's simply Jesus, Lord. We need you simply and profoundly. We pray for those, Lord, in our midst who are dealing with loss and grief and struggle and weakness and sickness, that they find in you, Lord, their treasure. So we lift up Bob Beverly today as he has in so many ways faced very uh, tough times. Lord, we pray your healing on him and to be with Joan, that you would teach us all, Lord God, so that we can grow closer to you, that we, along with everyone, can point to you, Lord Jesus, as our treasure, as our ultimate goal in life. You are the fount, the source of all pleasure. In your presence is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. We thank you, Lord Jesus. All these things we pray in your name. Amen.